everyone, and welcome to United We Stand. I'm your host, Jim Feeney, and this show airs every Wednesday with 20 to 30 minutes of hopefully insightful commentary about the world around us and how we build a stronger, more sustainable America. You can also find these podcasts at www.jimfeeney.com, that's J-I-M-F-I-N-I, and subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and lots of other spots. Today, I want to talk about the principles that underpin the concept of locally grown government. The first two are the most important because they act as kind of limits or boundaries within which everything else happens. So these two principles are sustainability and adherence to the U.S. Constitution. I think the structure of the Constitution was designed to be sustainable. It's allowed America to adapt to changing conditions while still remaining true to the principles of bottom-up government and primacy of individual freedom. However, the flexibility of the Constitution provides enough room for bad policy to be implemented that ultimately could tip the balance away from sustainability. It seems to me that we might be at that kind of a tipping point right now, so this is a timely discussion. After we discuss the first two principles, we'll go into more depth about uh, other important principles that would guide policymaking in a locally grown government world. So the first chapter of my book is focused on sustainability for good reason. It's the exact center of all we are talking about. If an idea is not sustainable over the long term, then it has little value. While short-termism can have value, uh, it's no way to live over the long term. We need to apply the sustainability test to all that government does. Much of this has to do with money and commitments made over the long term to various parts of the citizenry. We've shown in previous episodes how the financial health of our government at all levels is getting worse by the year. A continually weakening financial condition for the United States will have terrible long-term impacts on all levels of our society. It weakens us and, and economic, it weakens us economically and invites adversaries to be more aggressive. As Americans, we fancy ourselves as being the indispensable nation, the world policeman, creator of the post-World War II order. Yes, we are all those things, but that status is not guaranteed forever. So locally grown government considers sustainability as really the most important feature of a well-functioning society. Locally grown government, uh, locally grown is really about bottom-up, grassroots, federalism, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. A democratic republic like ours requires the consent of the government. Our elected representatives must embrace this fact or the system fails. Democracy can't be forced upon citizens by a central authority, nor can it emerge bottom-up from mayhem. Rather, it is the result of a negotiation between citizens of what constitutes the common good. It works because it allows citizens the freedom to create meaning and purpose in their lives while ensuring the common good is respected. In contrast, top-down centralized government requires force to maintain its power. Dissent can't be tolerated, and fear and coercion become the indispensable tools to ensure that the mob falls in line. Bottom-up government is founded on the inherent power of the individual citizen, whose basic organizational unit is the family. The founders considered this natural state of freedom and primacy of the individual to be self-evident, meaning nature, this is a natural law of the condition of man born into a state of freedom. 
Families are based on love. Parents are endowed with the biological instincts of selflessness in caring for their families. So it really is the most basic and ancient form of government. And if families aren't stable, nothing will be stable. Another important principle of locally grown government is decentralization. But it's a legitimate question to ask that with all the responsibilities and tasks involved in governing, how can a decentralized structure get anything done? It would seem there would be too many competing interests and no higher authority to adjudicate over the inevitable disputes that would arise. Well, our Constitution doesn't exactly permit full decentralization of power. It certainly reserves for the federal government important exclusive powers like establishing a national currency, national defense, justice system, regulation of interstate commerce, foreign affairs, and immigration. That's a lot of power that doesn't typically affect the daily lives of ordinary people who are understandably happy to delegate these responsibilities upstream to the federal government. But how can politicians in Washington, D.C., know what's best for people living in Topeka, Kansas, or Chicago and Los Angeles from that sort of lofty height. We're a huge and diverse country, and legislation that tries to be one-size-fits-all is bound to be less effective and more contentious. There are many examples of the effectiveness of widely distributed power. The Federalist Papers, which are part of America's founding tradition, describes the benefits eloquently. Uh, federalism is just a metaphor for decentralized power, and it serves as a model for many emerging companies that have diverse populations. In some countries, federalism is adopted as a means of giving different ethnic and regional groups some autonomy and control over their own affairs. In a 2004 paper entitled Why Decentralized Power in a Democracy, author and Stanford professor Larry Diamond makes this point eloquently. The thinking is that if every different ethnic and religious minority has some autonomy, some ability to determine their own local affairs with respect to education, culture, economic development, they will feel more secure and be more willing to accept the authority and legitimacy of the larger national state. If a republic is to survive, it can't be winner take all, particularly if one party is always going to win and thus take all. When some governing responsibilities and resources are distributed to lower levels of authority, and then when there are a lot of different provinces and municipalities whose governments will be chosen through elections, parties and groups that cannot win control of the central government may win the opportunity to exercise power in some of the lower level governments. This increases their confidence in and commitment to the overall political system and the sense among citizens that the system is fair and inclusive. If groups with strong bases of support in the country are completely and indefinitely excluded from any share of the political power at any level, they're likely to question and even challenge the legitimacy of the system. In short, decentralization is increasingly being demanded from the grassroots and is embraced for its potential to enhance the depth and legitimacy of the democracy. A decentralized but interlinked network also provides an important natural firewall against the spread of bad things. For example, according to the U.S. Center for Disease Control, who we've heard a lot about this year uh, and a lot from this year, uh, at least 2 million people become infected with bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics, and at least 23,000 people die each year as a direct result of those infections. Many more people die from other conditions complicated by antibiotic-resistant infections. Foodborne illnesses affects 48 million Americans each year. And of course, we are witnessing the massive loss of life and economic value as a result of the COVID-19 virus. 
These are staggering numbers of people affected by harmful organisms that are literally everywhere looking to invade a host species. A host is a relatively homogeneous environment with, character, with similar characteristics that encourage growth. In the organic world, it's a larger organism like a bird, a vegetable, or a human that uh, once the organism invades that species, it quickly infects the host, causing sickness and even death. Since humans and animals are social creatures, they're in constant contact with one another, providing these microorganisms an opportunity to jump to other hosts through air and physical contact. Humans and animals have natural antibodies that fight these microorganisms, but the bugs spread so fast, they often overwhelm our physical systems. The bugs are determined, and their mission is simple, to survive and grow, so they adapt. Vaccines must be constantly updated each year to handle new, more resistant strains of bacteria and viruses. Sometimes it feels as though we're losing the war. In a similar fashion, computer malware and computer viruses depend also on a common host in the form of a homogeneous digital network to spread. A piece of malware is written for the underlying operating system upon which the software is targeted. Black hat hackers wanting to invade, for example, Apple products will build their malware specifically for the iOS operating system and different versions of the hacking virus for a Windows operating system or a Samsung operating system for mobile phones. It generally won't function in uh, a different environment. The different operating systems also become a natural firewall, just like in the biological world. Isn't it fascinating to see how digital code behaving is behaving just like living organisms? And actually, both are programmed to be mobile, stealthy, and self-replicating. Given that human computer engineers can create software code that behaves biologically, it's not hard to imagine a future world where machines might become self-aware. Scary. So what do the commonalities between organic and computer viruses have to do with crafting more responsible and sustainable government? I'm sure that answer is at the, the front of your mind now. Well, the answer is diversity. The more diverse systems are, the less likely they are to be invaded by intruders. If a government becomes too top-heavy, meaning that the level of involvement in people's lives increases, the command and control mechanisms become standardized so that the economic and social shocks that occur spread very quickly in a homogeneous system. In economic and political systems that rely heavily on central planning by a few allegedly smart people, the risk increases that one wrong decision – will have a far worse impact on the entire country than a network of many states or cities and towns making similar decisions, but whose effects are walled off by political boundaries. The geographic borders of many lower-level government entities, in fact, act as a natural firewall for bad decisions. Okay, we're going to take a short break, and we will be back in a few with more from United We Stand. Welcome back, folks, to United We Stand. I'm your host, Jim Feeney, and we are talking about locally grown government principles uh, for my book that undergird the way we should be governing in our country. 
Bottom-up and decentralization are important uh, features of locally grown government, but, but together not sufficient to uh, create a sustainable democratic republic. Governing at the base of the power pyramid requires immense flexibility. Yes, all the layers of the government are bounded by a national constitution, of course, but how do we manage the day-to-day issues of the diverse cities and towns where life is actually lived? The answer, to me, is to allow the base of the power pyramid to be self-organizing. Each diverse component of the base will have cultural idiosyncrasies that only citizens living there will know what's best and what will work and be respected as law. And this can differ significantly from town to town. In the United States, some local governments organize as cities with elected mayors and city councils who create and enforce local ordinances and laws governing diverse issues like real estate development, business licensing, and schools. Other smaller municipalities organize as towns with an elected town council and a greater emphasis on public town meetings. All these local forms must conform to the laws of the state they belong as well as to the federal laws. A great example of a self-organizing entity is uh, we have, we'll go to the business world with Visa International. Everyone knows Visa. They carry Visa-based cards uh, in their wallet. And as of 2018, Visa had 320 million customers, 40% more than its nearest competitor. Its founder, a guy named D. Hawk, H-O-C-K, uh, started the company in 1968 with a list of principles he took from a lifetime of observing nature. And in 2005, he wrote a book called One from Many, where he describes uh, his experience at Visa. So to quote D, the amazing thing about Visa was that nobody could find the center of the company. The center was like a non-coercive enabling organization that existed only for the purpose of assisting owner members to fulfill their activities with greater capacity, more effectively, and at less cost. D. Hawk thought of his company as what he coined a chaotic organization. Think of the word chaos uh, sort of combined with order, which embraced both the chaos of competition and the order of cooperation. In his earlier book, The Birth of the Chaotic Age, he describes the principles behind a chaotic organization. And going through this list is pretty fascinating. So let's do that for a second. He says it should be equitably owned by all members. It should not force uniformity. The organization should be open to all qualified members. The organization's power, function, and resources should be distributed as much as possible. Authority should be fairly distributed within each governing entity. No individual or group should be able to to dominate or control decision-making. It should introduce, not compel change, and it should be flexible and yet durable. At the core of uh, Hawk's formula is the organization as an enabler rather than the controller. Many effective leadership theories are based on this critical concept. Lean, for example, is a management practice that seeks to remove constraints and simplify business processes so that they are more efficient. It recognizes that many the, the answers to many hard problems come from people on the front lines doing the work, not from people in the, the front office theorizing, theorizing about and controlling the work. This kind of leads me to my next principle within locally grown government uh, is the bias to individual rights. The most important feature of the U.S. Constitution is the guarantee to its citizens of the right to mostly control their own lives. It accomplishes accomplishes this by affirming uh, the individual freedom established in the Declaration of Independence where I quote, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness – 
Using that foundation, the Constitution enumerates specific powers to the federal government where the common good takes precedence over individual liberty or states' rights. It limits federal power, on the other hand, by stating that all powers not specifically enumerated to the federal government automatically are inure and are retained by the states and individuals. This means there must be a high bar for government to infringe on any individual right. An example that elegantly exposes the tension between individual rights and the common good is privacy. Although the Constitution contains no express right to privacy, the Bill of Rights addresses relevant aspects, including privacy of beliefs through the freedom of speech and religious worship in the First Amendment, privacy of the home against forced quartering of soldiers in the Third Amendment, privacy of the person and possessions as against unreasonable searches in the Fourth Amendment, and the Fifth Amendment has protection against self-incrimination, reflecting the privacy of personal information. In addition, the Ninth Amendment states that the enumeration of certain rights in the Bill of Rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage any other rights retained by the people. The meaning of the Ninth Amendment is a bit squishy, but some Supreme Court justices have interpreted it as justification for a broad reading of the Bill of Rights to protect privacy in ways not specifically provided in the first eight constitutional amendments. With the rapid incursion of technology into our lives, our personal data is all over the place. Some say there should be no expectation of privacy when you use the Internet. However, the federal government, in its exercise of delegated power to defend the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, argues that collecting personal data is essential in detecting and deterring crime and foreign attacks. After all, terrorists and hackers are all using the most advanced technology to attack individuals, companies, and even the government. Certainly, citizens have a common interest in protecting against nefarious actors. In the aftermath of the 9-11 tragedy, the FBI developed software to monitor and analyze our Internet traffic. This program, called Carnivore, required telecommunications and Internet companies to provide backdoors for the feds to sweep all digital traffic into a common government-controlled database. Not just the bad guys, but all of us. In 2013, Edward Snowden, a contractor hired by the National Security Agency, revealed the existence of this program through WikiLeaks. He was equally hailed as a patriotic whistleblower and a traitor, but he most certainly violated U.S. espionage laws and remains a fugitive living in Russia. Personally, I'm a little conflicted about what to think about Mr. Snowden. On one hand, I'm all for the transparency, the transparency, and I'm glad that I know that the federal government is collecting all this data on us. On the other hand, the method he used exposed this fact and was clearly criminal and most certainly has helped our adversaries evolve their techniques, which endangers all of us. At the end of the day, the law is law, and he should face the consequences of his action. But maybe after he served his time, we could organize a parade for him. The government defended its right to collect personal information as part of the enumerated power of common defense. It further qualified that carnivore was not reading any personal communication unless an individual is the subject of an investigation. In this case, the government must request access to this massive carnivore database that it already possesses from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISA. With a judge appointed by and overseen by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, this secret FISA court reviews the evidence and either grants or denies access to the FBI or the CIA. For many, given the power of technology, it's hard to believe that the database is not being analyzed by the government outside of specific FISA court authorizations. 
In fact, we've just seen how FISA courts were repeatedly lied to by the FBI in order to subvert a duly elected president. Privacy advocates are rightly concerned that this power to monitor is a slippery slope that could be used to stifle speech or attack citizens for political reasons. It is my opinion that this level of government collection of data is not constitutional and is a perfect use case supporting the primacy of individual rights over common good in the gray areas of life. That said, there are legitimate concerns on both sides of the issue, and a consensus really hasn't emerged uh, on this. So locally grown government supports that when an issue becomes a close struggle between individual rights and the common good, the deference should be applied to the individual rights. Well, folks, you've wasted another perfectly good 20 minutes. Uh, that's my show for today. If you want to continue the conversation, please subscribe to my website at jimfeeney.com. And you can receive my regular newsletter and comments uh, on it with others. We are uh, we're going to continue this conversation next week on locally grown principles, so that we can create a baseline here for action, for filtering policy ideas that come from either side of the aisle, either political party, and really focus on using these principles so that we can distill the best ideas to make a difference. Well, in the meantime, remember, united we stand, divided we fall, each one for the other and all for all. Take care. 